0: Um, if you don't know me, like I said, my name is Jesse, and uh, introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. For those of you who can't be with us this morning, whether you're traveling or sick, we, uh, we miss you. and We look forward to having you back. And for those of you who have been gone and are back, we're good to see you this morning. Well, I know that there are some track and field and some running enthusiasts in the crowd, whether current participants or former participants and athletes. And for, for those of you who aren't entirely familiar with the sport, there's a really interesting role in a middle to long distance race that an organizer of a track meet or a marathon will assign or hire out. And that is the role of a pace setter. Now, ultimately, the purpose of this role is for a person who is an elite runner to run in a middle or long distance race in order to get the field of runners onto a competitive pace by leading them on a predetermined time interval in order to get the best times out of the runners and so that no unfair methods can be used by the other runners. But here's the really interesting part about a pace setter. The pace setter seldom finishes the race that they start. If you've ever seen a track meet on TV, maybe you're watching the 800 meter or the 1600 meter, the mile, and there's a guy way out in front, and you're like, oh, this guy's a shoe-in to win. And then all of a sudden, they'll just step off the track into the infield. And their purpose, their sole purpose, was to set a pace for something greater to come behind them. That's a pace setter. In Matthew chapter 3, which is where we'll be today, so if you have your Bible, turn there, we are introduced to the New Testament's pace setter, John the Baptist. He's going to go out ahead of Jesus' ministry, and he's going to set a tempo for what's to come in Matthew and the rest of our New Testament. And as the weeks go by in this gospel, just like a pace setter, we're going to see him step aside for something greater to come behind him. Now, we're going to cover the entirety of chapter 3, which means we're going to move pretty quickly, so buckle in, and let's examine this glorious text that we have today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you, and we love that we are loved by you. We love that your word is plain, it is clear, understandable. Just like Jeremy said in the opening words, I pray that our hearts would be prepared, which is what John came to do, to prepare hearts. As we see the first words of Jesus as an adult, um, as we see different groups in this text. I pray that we would just be prepared, that we would leave changed, and that we would be ready for your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read verse 1 with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I want to focus really quick. I'm going to try and set some context, a foundation, or a basis those first three words of your first verse it says in those days and I want you to take taking the fact of the time gap from the last verse of chapter 2 which is still Jesus in his infancy and now it says in those days John the Baptist came preaching and we're about to see Jesus as an adult so we have a 27 to a 30 year gap from the last verse of chapter 2 to the first verse of chapter 3 so what does he mean by in those days well Let's give context to it. Think of what the Jewish people have gone through in chapter 2. Murmurings of a new born king, a son of David. Herod the Great feels threatened by it, and he sets out to murder any boy two years or under in Bethlehem. Then the nation mourns the targeted killing of their sons. And when one, one evil ruler dies, Herod, another one takes his place. Archelaus, who was more wicked than his father. And this is indicative of what the Israelites have been through in the last 400 years. The Jews are in bondage to Rome, and they've not heard a divine word from God or from one of his prophets in 400 years since Malachi. There has been silence because the nation has been in sin. God said in Deuteronomy and so many other places in the Old Testament, if you obey me, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll protect you. But... If you don't, there will come discipline. And Israel's been in discipline because they've continually been in idolatry. They've continually been in sin. So let's reread verse 1 with a paraphrase. In those days of Israel's affliction, bondage to foreign powers, and silence from God due to national and individual sin, John the Baptist came preaching. Enter our pace setter. So we're going to introduce them really quickly before we move forward. If you'll remember from Luke's gospel, John's parents were Zechariah, a priest, and Elizabeth, who was advanced in years and unable to have children. An angel comes to to Zechariah, and he says that Elizabeth is going to have a son, and he's going to be named John. Elizabeth also happened to be a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Jesus and John are most likely cousins, if not their relatives. And this event that we're going to see of John preaching in the wilderness and the subsequent baptism of Jesus is recorded or referred to in all four gospel accounts because it's very pivotal marking the beginning of Jesus' public appearance. This is the first time that we see him as an adult. So the stage has been set and the curtain is drawn. Let's go to verse 2. We're going to see the message that John brings. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand now to repent can simply be defined as a change of direction or change of mind away from something else and toward something else so away from one thing and toward another that is what it is to repent so let's say in a moment of weakness you eat a huge amount of jack in the box afterwards you're filled with deep and sincere regret (laughs) as you should the next time an urge comes of I want some 99 cent tacos and you feel that urge come, you repent, you change your direction away from the drive through line and to your own pantry. <laughs> you repent from that and you go to something else. That is what it is to repent. So he's calling on all who hear to turn away from their sin and go to something else. Why? What are the grounds for it? The grounds for his call to repentance is that God's kingdom The kingdom of heaven, which is just another way of saying the kingdom of God, is imminently close. Now, if you read Psalm 2, if you go home today and you read Psalm 2, you'll get an idea of why this is a frightening thing for a Jew to hear. Because in Psalm 2, if you're on bad terms with God or his appointed Messiah, his appointed Messiah just utterly destroys all of his enemies. And that kingdom, John says, is at hand. It is drawing near. So, repent. Do not be an enemy of God. Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is something that I, sometimes that we need to bring into focus. That scripture is clear that if God's enemies continually and absolutely refuse his calls to mercy, that he utterly destroys his enemies one day or another whether it's after a hundred years or after a day god destroys his enemies so john says repent the kingdom of god is coming well let's see how john would have been john the baptist himself would have been understood by his jewish peers let's read verses three and four for this is he john the baptist of who it was spoken by the prophet isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, when John wore a garment of camel's hair, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was wild locusts and honey. Now, there is a lot under this that a contemporary Jew of the first century would have understood that we kind of have to draw out. Now, based on a vast amount of writings from the prophets in the old testament the jews were waiting for what is called the day of the lord in this day god would return to make judgment among his enemies through his appointed messiah he would pour out his his spirit to his people and give them peace and blessing by his presence all of those events were to be preceded by a messenger or a voice in isaiah 40 verse 3 is a prophetic role of who that voice would be he would be crying out in the wilderness and what is he doing he's preparing the way of the lord god is coming and so is his kingdom now the messenger's purpose was to prepare the hearts of the people to be ready for god's return and this is john's role he's the pace setter Luke's gospel tells us that John's parents were told by an angel before John's birth exactly what he would accomplish. And this is from Malachi, referenced in Luke one. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he, John the Baptist, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Here it is, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared he's a pace setter and he's getting people up to speed so that he can step aside as something greater comes behind him john's gospel in the first chapter lets us know that john the baptist understood that he fulfilled this role pharisees ask him who are you we need to give an answer to those who sent us so what does john say about himself he says I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness make straight the way of the lord as the prophet isaiah said and he quotes the passage from isaiah in verse three he knows who he was his parents knew who he was and now all of these murmurings start going around and the content of what john the baptist is preaching that he's in the wilderness which is where isaiah says this voice is going to come from and now there's anticipation growing there's expectation. It's building. Is this the voice? Is this the messenger? Is this the person who comes in the spirit and power of Elisha? I think it is. The Jews who, under, who heard the rumors understood who he was too. But let alone from verse 3, there's another primary way that they would have understood who John was, and that was by his appearance. Now, if you followed Goff, in the late 90s and early 2000s and you saw a man by the name of Tiger Woods and he was wearing something if he was wearing a red nike polo and black slacks what day was it sunday because he was wearing his sunday red he wore that every final day of every tournament he ever played in so if you literally just saw a picture of him in a tournament for those of you who are golf followers you know exactly what's going on, you know the context. And there's something about John the Baptist's appearance that the Jews in the first century would have gone, ah, that's a trigger. So what is it? Well, there was a figure prophesied about in the very last two verses of your Old Testament in Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. And we're gonna have it on the screen here. this figure would come with the same power and ministry, the great prophet, Elijah had he would be always messenger to Israel which is in chapter 3 of Malachi and he would prepare the nation for God's return verse 5 of Malachi 4 behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of what the great and awesome day of the Lord in which God will judge his enemies through his Messiah and the outpouring of the Spirit is coming peace and blessing and presence of God will return There will be someone who will be in the likeness of elijah who comes now who do you think john the baptist most physically resembles elijah Elijah, according to his verse 4 now john wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist in second kings chapter one ahaziah is a, a wicked king he gets hurt he sends some servants to go get this prophet and bring him to him so maybe that he can get healed This prophet gives his servants some trouble. They come back to him, and Ahaziah says to the servants, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? This is 2 Kings 1. And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt belt of leather around his waist. And Ahaziah said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. So there is something, again, here's another trigger for a first century Jew. They're saying, Hey, not only is he preaching things that we're anticipating of a voice crying in the wilderness, he looks like him, this figure who's prophesied. And Malachi prophesied this 400 years after the life of Elijah. So we're not talking about the actual Elijah, Elijah from First and Second Kings. In fact, Jesus will confirm John the Baptist's role as this Elijah, a new Elijah from Malachi 3 and 4 in chapter 11 of Matthew. And Jesus simply says in 1114, if you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. This is the pace setter. This is John the Baptist. Now, this is a a key perspective into why the people respond the way that they do in the next two verses. Let's read these. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Doesn't that give a little bit more of a helpful insight as to why Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding regions would go out to see some really hairy person <laughs> with sheepskin and a leather belt who eats wild locusts and honey, who's in this desert wilderness of Judea baptizing people? Because the nation is expecting something. They're expecting Messiah. They're expecting the day of the Lord. And now a voice has appeared in the wilderness crying out, repent. And the Jews understand their plight. They understand their position in history of we're under bondage, which means we've been in sin, which means we need to repent because it's not good to be an enemy of God when he comes in his kingdom because him, he and his Messiah will destroy his enemies. Now, by this understanding, their hearts are turned from the sin which has held them in bondage. And it's a beautiful scene. Imagine half of Denton going to Hickory Creek in Argyle, confessing sins, being baptized. This is what I have done. This is what I have done. This is what I will do. Can you imagine the stirring in Denton and how beautiful this would be? A revival. The first song that we sang this morning, Revive Us Again. The nation is becoming... Awakened because the pace setter is preparing hearts for the coming of the Lord Now I want to give a quick word on baptism in general and John's baptism in particular First baptism never was or never has been salvific That is baptism does not secure salvation. It signifies that you already obtain it or you already possess it It's a symbol Paul says to the Corinthians, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he distinguishes the two, baptism and gospel. The baptism John is performing is not the equivalent of what the church performs today, simply because what baptism today signifies has not happened when John is baptizing. Does that make sense? We're not there yet. So the baptism that John is performing it's not quite what we have today, but it's getting there. So it's a, baptism today is a powerful symbol of a repentant sinner who has been unified with Christ through faith. In the likeness of his death, he has been immersed or baptized and has been raised with Jesus to newness of life. And those haven't happened yet. So commentators note that what's most likely going on here is a new way of publicly identifying with God's people by repentance and the confession of his sin as the kingdom of heaven draws near. It's a new way to publicly identify yourself with, I am among God's people. Repentance and confession of the sin as they're being baptized. And here are a few things a first century Jew is anticipating while they're being baptized. The Messiah is coming. The day of the Lord is near. Freedom from bondage is imminent. Justice for the stricken, healing for the broken. Peace and righteousness are on the way, judgment of the wicked, and the pouring out of God's spirit. And is all of that going to be fulfilled? It is, but in a way that's so much grander and more than they could have or we could have ever imagined. But not all who heard this voice are going to respond in the same way. Look at the first half of verse 7, and we're going to see the response of the religious, whereas we just saw the response of the repentant. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, now we're going to hold right there. We'll see two new groups arrive on the scene, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we'll learn more about them as we get further into Matthew, but let's do a short introduction into who these people were. And then the first thing to note that's curious about Matthew mentioning them arriving together is that these two groups do not like each other. They do not get along. The Pharisees were about personal piety, which had gone deep into legalism and hypocrisy. They did not like Rome or its rulers. They didn't like Julius Caesar, and they didn't like Herod the Great. They believed in the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead, and for these reasons, they tended to have a little bit more popularity than the next group. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, that there was no life after death, that your soul was annihilated, and they denied spiritual realities of angels, demons, and miracles, which is why the Sadducees are sad, you see. (laughs) They were as political of a group as they were religious, and so they remained friendly with Rome and its rulers. Now, do you remember in chapter 2 when Herod the Great hears the rumor of a new son of David who's going to be a king of the Jews? Who comes to him to give him counsel and an apathetic response as to where this king will be born? Priests. And you know who made up most of the priests? Sadducees. So they're friendly with Rome, and they're apathetic to a Messiah because they don't believe in him. They don't believe in a resurrection. So it's interesting that Matthew puts them both arriving at this baptism of confession of sin together. So what gives? Why are they mentioned here? If there's one thing they did have in common is that they liked control of a claim. That is who's getting praise, who's getting recognition. And the realities that John is preaching is an immediate and absolute threat to the established order of things for these religious elite. It's a threat to them. And they most likely arrive to investigate a religious happening that wasn't under either of their sanctions. So they're coming here to see they're sniffing it out to see what's going on. And the ESV is helpful by translating they're coming to his baptism, where if you have, I think if you have an NASB, it'll say four. The word there is epi, which is normally translated to, rather than four, which is normally gar. So they're coming to his baptism. The NIV is more helpful in, in, in translating it. They were coming to where he was baptizing. And this is in opposition to the people in verses 5 and 6, who are coming and they're getting baptized. They're coming for his baptism. And it's in opposition to Jesus in verse 13, where it says Jesus was coming to be baptized. There's intention with his coming to John. Now, these, among others, are the reasons that John gives them a stern response whenever they arrive on the scene. Because the religious leaders of Israel, responsible for shepherding God's people, have closed their hearts. The the switch is off. John has come to prepare hearts and their hearts are closed because they're just coming to investigate religious happening that wasn't under their sanction because they're only concerned with appearance and position. And here's a quick note on the location of John's ministry. So in verse three, where does the voice cry out from? The wilderness, not the temple. The temple is where God's specific presence was meant to be, which indicates if it's coming from the wilderness, God is not there. He is not in the temple. What does Jesus say later in the gospel? You have My Father's house was meant to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So in this den of robbers, God says, I'm gonna take my presence. And you have 400 years of silence. And now his presence is coming back and not from where the religious rulers, the religious elite are at, are headquartered from. It's coming from the wilderness. In student ministry, I used to be in student ministry for years and uh, we used to have a phrase that we would give to incoming leaders. And it was just a thing of cautioning them of the influence that they have over young people. And we would say, what you do in moderation, students will do in excess. So be cautious. What you do in moderation, students will do in excess. As the leader goes, so go the people. And now the r- rulers and the religious elite of Israel are about to get a stern warning. James 3 says, not many of you, teach- not many of you brothers should become teachers because we will inquire a stricter judgment now John's response to this group of people he saw them coming to his baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance now one commentator notes that brood here likely indicates or can be translated lineage so you could say you could reread it by John saying you sons of vipers children of serpents. And for people who know their Old Testament really well, do you think having the indication of them being called sons of serpents would sit very well? It would not sit very well. Likely, there would be an, an objection in their mind that would come up, and which is what we get in verses 9 and 10. But they don't get to say it. John outruns them. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Their objection will be this. They were born into a covenant relationship with God simply by being ethnic sons of Abraham. And they, do, by that, do not need to repent or be afraid of any coming judgment because I'm born into the seed of Abraham. So I have all of his promises by birth. And a commentator makes this note John uses the metaphor of the root of a tree, which could refer to the Pharisees and Sadducees' reliance on being a descendant of Abraham. So if you view, let's say, Sadducees, Pharisees, and their branches, and leaves of a tree. And they see themselves as the lineage of the root of Abraham. And that's the way that they're made right with God, simply by birth, which we would not hold to. John puts in the metaphor of an ax. And what is the ax doing? It's saying it's laid to the root, meaning there's someone has two hands on an ax and it's resting on the root and the root is about to be severed. Because that tree is not actually a tree of fruit. It is not life-bearing. And what happens to the tree? It's cut down and cast into the fire. He confronts their objection and he dismantles it before they even get to say a word. Do not presume to say to yourself, we are children of Abraham, you sons of snakes. Jesus says this in John 6, you are of your father. They say, our father's Abraham. He says, no, you're of of your father, the devil which is who we are before we know christ ephesians 2 the prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience and we were by nature children of wrath this is us the pharisees and sadducees are no different from us they have a different context and a different role than we have but we need a new life we need a new righteousness we need a new root So I don't want to disconnect ourselves from the danger that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were presently in. Because we can sometimes get connected to trees that do not bear fruit. The media that we watch, the identities that we find ourselves wrapped up in, the music we listen to, the books we read, the unwholesome conversations we partake in, fill in the blank, lay the ax to them, sever yourself from that dead tree. Because in all of us, there must be personal repentance, a turning from sin, and a movement towards God through Christ Jesus. This is not applicable only to a religious group in the first century. Before moving forward, I do want to pause and observe the heart of a really, really merciful father. The fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the nation are way off on a wrong path and they have been for a long time, since Genesis 3. And Romans 2 says this, Do you think lightly on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to draw us to himself, because he's patient, and he forbears with us, and he... Waits for us and he calls us and he tries to draw us. It's meant to make you repent, and that's really good news for you and for me. Well, in verses 11 and 12, the warning is given a little bit more detail. Verses 11 and 12 I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, why repent soon or expediently? Because God's Messiah is coming, which can be, be viewed positively or negatively depending on the response to the call. Positively, it can be viewed in the end of verse 11. For those who repent they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, fire could be connotated with judgment, but it's often fire for God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament can be seen as a purifying image. That fire purifies, just like it refines gold. So it could be coming... John could be saying that this Messiah, who's going to immerse you or baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is what the day of the Lord is promising, that God is going to pour out his Spirit, it will be seen with the Holy Spirit and fire, meaning it comes with a purification and a refining that John the Baptist can't offer, which again is why he's the pay setter and he steps aside. And here comes a greater baptism behind him. That we'll see by the end of Matthew something greater is coming. And it can be viewed positively. If you repent, a greater baptism is coming. Jesus fulfills what God says in Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel, God says this, he prophesies, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And this is what John the Baptist is anticipating the spirit the ministry of the messiah to bring the baptism of the spirit now it's possible that fire is good in the end of verse 11 but it can definitely be viewed negatively for those who reject this call to repentance in the end of verse 10 and the end of verse 12 because that type of fire is definitely going to be negative the image in verse 10 is this is a dead tree that you are a part of and this tree is getting cut down and thrown into a fire the other view is this is gonna be wheat and what a wheat farmer would do when they's, it's time to harvest their wheat, they would get a pitchfork or a winnowing fork and you throw wheat up into the air. The usable portion is heavy and it, the kernels fall straight back down. The shaft, which is the unusable portion, will blow aside. It, the wind will carry it somewhere else. Afterwards, you gather the shaft and you throw it in the fire because it's useless. The useful part, which falls down, is brought up gathered up and is kept safe for use in the barn so he's saying if you don't repent you're the tree if you don't repent you're the shaft if you repent you're safe in the barn from god's coming judgment and you get the outpouring of the spirit as god makes amends with his enemies now As all this is going on, while they're having this unrivaled expectation, while there's this heightened sense of emotion, as John the Baptist is kind of laying into religious leaders of his time, in perfect timing, you have the first few words of verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Here comes the Messiah. Let's read it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized with intention by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. These are the first words that we're going to see Jesus as an adult speak in Matthew. And they're already in regard to the fulfillment of righteousness. Now, both John and Jesus acknowledge that Jesus does not need this baptism because it's a baptism of repentance. Does Jesus need to repent of anything? He does not. So John says, this isn't fitting. So why does Jesus insist? Two reasons. First, Jesus authenticates John's ministry as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as a messenger, as Elijah by taking John's baptism, and then he's going to advance John's ministry. So in chapter four, verse seventeen, Jesus begins publicly preaching, and he says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And he picks right up where John leaves off. The pace setter sets aside, and the greater thing comes behind him. But John the Baptist or Jesus picks the baton from John and carries it right along. He's authenticating and he's advancing john the baptist ministry because john the baptist is preparing the people for the return of god second the reason why jesus death on the cross is sufficient to atone for our sin is because jesus took on himself that which was not his to carry our sin Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant who will be Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse six, We will all like sheep, we all like sheep, have gone astray each to His own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Second Corinthians 5: God made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Later in Corinthians, it says, by Jesus' poverty, we have been made rich. Jesus has this baptism of repentance for us, for the nation, because only his will be sufficient. He's the spotless lamb. And when he is judged, he has done all fulfillment of righteousness for us so that his death is eligible and able to, to pay for your sin. Now, because of Jesus' decision to bear this burden, we are led into the next two verses. Verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God <coughs> descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold a voice from heaven said This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased Now again for those of the people that were there in the audience as they're seeing this scene unfold let's give a little bit of backdrop into what they're hearing and There's a passage from Isaiah and I think we have it on the screen in Isaiah 42:1 This is talking about Jesus who will be a servant for the Lord Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights are as well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And the crowd see it, this event. The Messiah has come, the heavens have opened, the spirit has come down upon him, a voice from heaven has said this is my son, which they're reminiscing from Psalm 2. You are my son today, I've begotten you. And they're After centuries, there he is. Behold the lamb, like Zach said. There's our Messiah. The confirmation of the father's seal of approval rests on him. And he comes out of the water approved by God. And here's the really beautiful thing. How have the voices changed from chapter two? Go to chapter two in verse 18, this was after boys two and under were killed in Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more a voice of mourning because this tragedy is like so many others that the Jews have gone through in the past couple of hundred years. Chapter 3, verse 3, look at this. This was he who was spoken by the prophet when he said, what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. A voice of mourning. Now we have a voice of warning. And then at the end of chapter 3, in verse 17, the heavens open, and behold a voice from heaven. The silence is broken. God has spoken again. The Messiah is coming. The day of the Lord and his kingdom are upon Israel. Judgment is at hand. The spirit is poured out. Huge things are coming. And how did God break his silence? In Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven. The Son obeys his will. And the spirit rests upon him. All of this glorious manifestation to begin the public ministry of Jesus which brings about the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven which has come to earth this is the king, coming kingdom the israelites wanted deliverance from bondage jesus will deliver from bondage of death they wanted justice jesus will die for sin they wanted a king he will reign victorious in his resurrection they wanted peace and blessing Jesus himself is our peace. So what do we want? All of the latter that Jesus provides. To live now in the realities that we will live in forever. That is what it is to prepare for the coming kingdom of heaven. To live now in the realities that we will live in forever. Which is to love God and love one another. The gospel is never less than what we think. It is always more. Today, do you not know God as Savior? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, which is Jesus, is at hand. Today, if you do know God as Savior, let us all say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we ask for our hearts to be prepared that if there be in us darkness that needs repentance, let there be in us sin that needs confession, corporate or individual. Let us repent. For Your kingdom has been inaugurated by the coming of Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and he stands at your right hand with all authority to judge. We are in a moment of mercy. We are in a stage of grace. Father, let us not presume upon your riches of kindness. Your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So, Father, might we dig through our hearts. Might we search ourselves and find if there be any darkness that would separate us from you, that we would confess it, that we would draw near to you because your coming draws near to us. As we take communion, Father, I pray that we would examine our hearts, that we would proclaim the Lord's death, What he has accomplished for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.